Welcome to an inspirational message recorded live at Little Falls Christian Center. Heavenly Father, as you prepare our hearts to receive the message that your Holy Spirit wants to speak in the lives of every person, we commit this to you. We surrender ourselves to you, Father. And we ask that by the leading of your Holy Spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, that you will be glorified with that which you have, with that which you want to give, and that which you desire in the hearts of the people to not only resonate, Lord, but to bring about the transformation and the change so that your kingdom may come and that your will be done. I pray this in the holy name of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, it feels kind of awkward knowing that in a week's time, things will be different. Yes, in seven days' time from now, the church will open. And there's great excitement and anticipation, certainly from us here at the church and from the people that we have been speaking with. But I want to take you back to the day when they announced lockdown in South Africa. That was on the 23rd of last year, of March. And then it was announced that on midnight, the 26th of March, which is strange because midnight 26th of March is actually the 27th of March. But that is when lockdown was introduced in this nation. And with us opening up on the 2nd of May, this coming Sunday, meaning that for us as this church, the lockdown ends on the 1st of May. From that day when lockdown was introduced in this nation up until the 1st of May would be exactly 400 days that this church had been closed. Now, it may just seem like a normal number to you, but I believe in prophetic. I believe that God speaks through the numbers and especially in this church. And you will find out why I say that. 400, in biblical terms, represent the number of coming out of bondage. We read in the book of Genesis 15, verses uh, 11 to 12, 12 to 13, sorry, that God promises here that Israel will be delivered from the hand of their oppressors after 400 years. So too, David and his mighty men was hiding in a cave from Saul, David and 400 of his men being in bondage um, because of Saul pursuing them. Elijah, in the book of 1 Kings 18 verses 19, we, we hear of the 400 Baal prophets that moved up to Carmel. Sorry, the 450. But there were the 400 Ezra prophets. And the word of God says in 1 Kings 18 verses 19, they ate at the table of Jezebel. Israel was held in bondage of fear. Elijah himself even was afraid, even after he had destroyed or God destroyed the 400 Baal prophets. Sorry, the 450 Baal prophets. The point is this. God speaks prophetically in his word to these people. In this church, God has always spoken prophetically. Always he had spoken prophetically. God has placed a prophet in this house through our senior leader, Pastor Harold. The ministry of God's word has happened here through the power and the presence of God's Holy Spirit. And that will be what you and I will be coming back to this coming Sunday. Yes, God still speaks prophetically today. This message of the church, this church coming out of bondage 
for four, from 400 days is a prophetic message. The signs and wonders and miracles through God's Holy Spirit has always been evident in this church and it will continue and even more so when this church opens. I want to state emphatically, prophetically, God is opening up this church after 400 days after 400, we have been kept in bondage, but no longer. So things will be different. And if you do not trust and believe what I'm saying, let me just motivate it by something significant that you will understand why God is speaking prophetically, even in the times that we are living in. Recently, in the month of March, I think it is the 16th, if I have my date correct. Yes, on the 16th of March, in Israel... In the Dead Sea, they discovered additional Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, the last time that they discovered any Dead Sea Scrolls was in 1947, more than 60 years ago. And it is significant that these biblical inscriptions that they discovered this time around consisted of two portions of Scripture. Now, I'm going to give it to you and listen how God speaks to us even in the time that we are in. It is no coincidence that these two Scriptures were found authenticated that it's a biblical artifact of God speaking to us. The first portion is found in the book of Nahum, uh, chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. And listen to what God is saying here. God is saying, The mountains quake before Him, Him being God. The hills melt and the earth heaves. This word heaves means in Hebrew that the earth is lifted up and it burns in God's presence. Yes, the world and all who dwell in it. Verse 6, who can stand before his indignation? This word indignation means who can stand before God's wrath, before God's displeasure at the sins of this world? Who can endure the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire, and the rocks are thrown down by him. Just this portion of scripture speaks prophetically to the world out there. God's indignation and his wrath and his displeasure towards the sins of the world is spoken through his word. God is speaking to the world right now at this point in time. This is what he thinks of the sins of this world. God is angry. God is furious because of the sins of this world. And it is a time for the people to wake up because his son must come to catch us up and to take us up. But God is telling us that we need to come right and that he is showing the world what he is thinking of the sins that had befallen the world at this point in time. And the world must wake up and the world must listen and pay attention because God speaks. He always had been speaking and he will continue to speak through his word. Listen to the next portion of scripture. God moves now from the world. He moves to you, the church, the body of Christ, as he speaks in that second portion of scripture that was found in the Dead Sea on the, on the 16th of March. It, it, it is saying this in the book of Zechariah 8 verses uh, 16 and 17. You, to you, God says, these are the things you shall do. Speak each man the truth to his neighbor. Give judgment in your gates for truth, for justice, and for peace. Verse 17, let none of you think evil in your heart against your neighbor and do not love a false oath for all these things I hate, 
says the Lord. God is here reminding the church what it is that we ought to do. To speak the truth. To speak the truth concerning His word out there. That even in our gates, this pertains to the countries. To speak truth and justice and peace. And that all judgment must be in line with this. Tell me God is not speaking prophetically in the hour that we are living in. It is no coincidence or accident that these two scriptures are given to the world and are given to the church to act upon in the time that we are living in. I state again, in this church, the prophetic moves because God moves. We teach God's Holy Spirit. We teach the gifts of the Holy Spirit and the manifestation of God's Holy Spirit through signs and wonders and miracles. God moves. And he will speak and continue to speak prophetically in this church. So when the church opens in seven days, coming out of bondage, things will change. And it is a challenge to all of us, including you that are sitting there. And I say this with great love and with great affection. The time for sitting in the comfort of our homes, watching all of this, having a nice warm and a hot blanket, having a nice warm cup of hot chocolate, Milo or coffee, the time of that is coming to an end because this is not what God had in mind when He gave us the instruction that we should not neglect the fellowship of the saints. Hebrew, Hebrews 10, verse 25, in God's words, in the New Living Translation, I like what it says there, let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do. But encourage one another, especially now that the day of His return is drawing near. That word neglect in the Greek means, do not forsake something significant. God renders it as significant when the people gather together. So in a week's time from now, we are looking forward to you meeting with us together here. You know, we cannot afford to be like the Israelites. You know, it's something that truly has always surprisingly shocked me that when Israel came out of exile, the Babylonian exile, after 70 years, King Cyrus passed a decree and said, there you go, Israel. Go and build your temple in Jerusalem. Only about 50,000 people went. Many of them stayed behind because they were comfortable in exile. Being kept in captivity became a comfort thing for some of them, for most of them who stayed behind. For us, it can never be like that. I say and I speak by faith through God's Holy Spirit that within the first hour when you make that booking this week of the church that will open, that it will be full. We need that. We desire that. We want to see you, but God wants us to be different because of this. And yes, the time has come. Pastor Harold recently mentioned it in one of his services and it struck a chord with me. It is time for a reality check. It is time for us to reset. It is time for a comeback. Yes, the church is making a comeback. Everybody loves a comeback story. And I am reminded of uh, the Olympics, the Summer Olympics in 1972 in Munich. And sadly, most people remember this Olympics for all the wrong reasons, you know, a very sad and atrocious situation happened during that Olympics that on the 5th of June in 1972, 11 of the Israeli athletes were taken captive by a Palestinian militant group and they were all killed. But three days prior to that, a wonderful 
miraculous, wonderful event took place. A man by the name of Dave Wattle, a USA athlete, he qualified for the Olympics to compete in the 800 meters as well as the 1500 meter. Now, just briefly, he was predominantly a 1500 meters athlete. He never ran the 800 meters. That was just used as a warm-up to practice his speed for the 1500 meters. So what his coach did at the USA trials leading up to the Olympic qualification, he suggested to him, go and partake in the 800 meters. It's a way of working on your speed in order to prepare for your favorite race, the 1500 meters. So he does, and he goes. And what happens? He wins the 800 meter at the, at the Olympic trials. His coach comes down and running to him and point out to him, look at, look at the time. You have just equaled the world record. And this was a surprise to him as for everyone else. So yeah, he goes off to the Olympics. But in the whole event in build-up to the Olympics, he gets married. This is now a couple of weeks we're talking about. He gets married, he goes on honeymoon, to great aggravation and frustration of the USA Olympic coach. So much so that they reckon he would not even go past the first round of the 800. But he was okay with that because his favorite race is the 1500. The 800 meter was only used for him as a warm-up. What happens at the Olympics? Also, he had tendonitis in his knees and he was struggling. So, above all expectation, he qualifies for the final of the 800 meter meters, still knowing this is not his favorite race. So when the race starts, eight athletes qualified. And the, the favorite is the Ukrainian runner who had been unbeaten in Olympic 800-meter um, finals for the last four years. So as they took off, and at immense pace, suddenly he's stone lost of the eight. When they go down the bend with the cameras, you can't even see him in, in, in the frame of, of, of the pictures. After 400 meters, he's stone lost. And those of you who know a little bit about athletics, especially the 800 meter, you don't run 800 meters. You don't jog it. You sprint it, essentially. They run an average time of 1 minute 42 seconds or so. That time it was 1 minute 45. So there's no jogging, no running. You sprint it, essentially. So he's so far behind. After 500 meters, with 300 meters to go, he's still lost. And he thinks to himself... I've got to do something because at least I must try and go for a podium finish, meaning that at least he would end third and, and, and obtain a bronze medal. So he decides to start passing the runners. By 100 meters left, 700 meters completed, he was lying fourth, and he just had to beat one more person to qualify to be on the podium to receive a medal. And he realized his pace was actually quite fast, and the runners were running slowly. They could not um, keep up with the pace that he was suddenly running at. And he passed the fourth runner. He passed the third runner. He passed the second runner. And right at the end, he just pips the guy in front of him and he wins the Olympic gold medal. It is regarded as one of the greatest comeback stories in athletics history. A person being so lost um, in, in, in a race, not it being his favorite race, winning it against all odds. The Bible has got the best comeback stories of all. We all heard of Job, know what happened to him, being so prosperous, all of it changed, and then him finding his way back with God, and God restored to him twice as much. Then there's also Gideon. Gideon of whom the angel of the Lord says to him, mighty man of valor, who God speaks of him. But what does Gideon say? He says, I am the weakest in my father's house. Our clan is the smallest of all in the tribe of Manasseh. But God 
lifts up Gideon and Gideon's comeback is him and his 300 men go and they defeat the Midianite army of more than 120,000 people. Now, if you do simple math here, that means each person effectively defeats 400 people. God does impossible math. Then there's Moses. Moses, 40 years took him to make a comeback and what a comeback it was. And then there's Paul. For me, one of my personal favorites, Saul when he comes back, he's Paul. Not just a change in names, but everything about him changes. But the greatest comeback of all in the Bible is that of our loving Father. You see, when Satan tricked and tempted man and fell into sin, we were doomed for eternal damnation. And so Satan thought as well. What was God's comeback? The Father provided the way out through salvation. God always had salvation in mind. His Son was the answer. His Son was the comeback so that we would never spend eternal eternity in hell but in heaven should we believe. We all love a great comeback story. You see, there's one thing that all these biblical comeback stories have in common. One thing. And this is that at some point in time, they all step aside and they allow for God to come in. They get out of the way. They step out of the way so that God can, 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 can move in. And Satan hates that. You know, Satan will do anything. He will do anything to stop you, every man and every woman, from stepping aside. He will stop them from doing that because this is what happens. The moment that we get out of the way, the moment that we step aside and allow for God to move, that is the time when breakthrough comes. And there are countless stories concerning this. And I want to take you to the book of Genesis verses uh, chapter 42 to 49. And I will give you a summary of what it is that I want to talk about. Because most of you know um, what's happening in this particular story. And in Genesis 42, 36, uh, just as a background quickly, Joseph sends his brothers back. He had seen them now. They don't know he is Joseph. But he tells them. You must bring back Benjamin. He keeps one brother behind, which is Simeon. So he is imprisoned. So the, the, the boys arrive at home and they tell their father Jacob what had happened. And he's furious, but he's heartbroken. He's upset because this is what he says in Genesis 42, 36. He said to them, you have bereaved me when he receives this information and this news. You have bereaved me. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And Benjamin, you want to take. All these things are against me. Now to understand how, Joseph, uh, how Jacob feels, that would bereaved in Hebrew means this. When he says, you have bereaved me, he says, you have allowed me to experience what it is to have an abortion or to have a miscarriage where there is a physical loss of life. That is what Jacob says to his sons. Reuben, the elders, then go to him and says to him, I am prepared to offer my two sons in exchange that you will send us to go to the man of Egypt and to take Benjamin. Jacob refuses. He is absolutely stubborn. He listens to no reason. He is hard-headed. He refuses to bow down to any request. So what happens? Over time, the food becomes depleted. Jacob refuses. He's absolutely stubborn and unrelenting concerning changing. And here is the thing. No situation is going to change if you do not change. 
at this point in time, there is nothing that is changing here. Jacob is so concerned about his situation. He is so self-centered. And this is what happens to many of us. When we become so focused upon our situation, upon the situation that doesn't change, we cannot see that we are the reason that the situation doesn't change. You see, Jacob was so fixed upon how he was bereaved, of how he was done in by. He was more concerned about the two sons that are supposedly dead. For him, Joseph was dead. And now uh, Simeon is imprisoned, may as well be dead because there's no way that he was going to sacrifice Benjamin for that. He's so focused upon the dead that he forgets about the ten sons that he has alive. You see, when your attention is focused on you and your situation and you become so selfish in that, you cannot be able to see what God wants to do. You cannot see the situation for what it is. Your eyes are fixed upon you. And when your eyes are fixed upon you, your eyes are not on God. God cannot move when you stand in the way. All of these men at some point in time, and these women, they walked and they stepped aside. And by faith, they trusted for God to come in and move. And here is what happened, Genesis 43 verses 6. Now suddenly the food is depleted. The situation is now calamitous, worse than before. They have nothing. And Jacob sends his son to go back to Egypt. But they say to him the same thing, that they cannot go without Benjamin. But now Judah speaks to his father, and Jacob listens to reason. Isn't it wonderful that sometimes, most times, when we are in such calamity, when we have nothing, there's no food, the situation is disastrous, they are going to die because of his stubbornness and his refusal to listen to reason, of because of his selfishness. Everybody is suffering here in this house. And now he listens to reason. And whereas Reuben came and offered his two sons, listen to Judah, Judah comes and he offers himself. The father, Jacob, listens to this. And he gives heed to this and he sends his son off with Benjamin. Right there, the situation changes because Jacob changes. What Jacob was holding on to, the very thing that was a stumbling block to him, the very thing that he was holding on to, which was Benjamin, the moment that he stepped aside and he sacrificed and he gave away Benjamin, everything changes because from that moment, from that moment, God restored unto him Joseph. God restored unto him Simeon. And he got Benjamin back. How wonderful is God concerning this? Everything changes when you step out of the way. There are other examples in the Bible too. When people step aside. When they allow God to come in and move. Hannah herself offered her son Samuel to God. It must have been hard. It's easy to make a promise to God when you have nothing, isn't it? But when that promise is fulfilled and you have to hold up your end of the bargain, it's a much different story. But she held to it. She weaned him and when the time was over for that, she gave Samuel to God. She stepped out of the way and allowed God to move. And what happened? The word says that Hannah became the mother of six children. God blessed and gave her more children. The father of the prodigal son moved out of the way when his son was insistent, his younger son, that he wanted to receive his inheritance. And there off his son goes. He knows that he's losing his son to the world. And by all accounts, he would die. But God has another plan. Because the father stepped out of the way, God brings back his son. His son repents and he changes and he is saved. 
because of the Father stepping out of the way. So it is with our Father. You've got to get this, precious child of God. The Father Himself stepped out of the way because of your wickedness and your calamity and your iniquity because of sin. You and I were destined for eternal damnation, but the Father stepped out of the way and He made way for His Son. He gave us His Son. Our imminent death could not hold the Father from holding back His Son from us. He gave Him. The Father stepped out of the way. He had nothing to lose. Our Heavenly Father had nothing to lose by keeping things unchanged. He could have seen, okay, well, my own creation sinned against me. They are headed for eternal damnation. I will leave them. I can start a new generation or I can do something else. But no, He held you in such high regard. He saw your future. There is books written of you in the heavens. Your name is written in the heavens. And the Father will fight for you to bring that into fruition. He had that in mind. It even costed Him to step out of the way so that He would offer and give His Son so that you and I could be reconciled unto Him. He was willing to step out of the way. I ask you this. What is your excuse for not stepping out of the way? What is the reason why you don't move and get out of the way? Are you so caught up in the selfishness and the stubbornness that all those around you are suffering too? Are you so concerned with what you have lost that what you have you don't even see? What will it take for you to come to that place? Will it be like a Jacob where there is nothing, where you have nothing anymore, where you have been depleted of all things including food that you will bow your knee to God and listen to reason for God to usher in a change what will it take for you to make a comeback look at what happened to Jacob look at what happened to him that moment that he changed not only did God restore his family unto him but then it said when the cavalry so to speak arrived at his door busy preparing for them to embark on the journey to go to the land of Goshen in Egypt, the first thing that Jacob does, he goes to Beersheba. At Beersheba, he does what his father did, Isaac, and he does what his grandfather, Abraham, did. He goes and he prays to God. He goes and he makes an offer to God. And what does God do? Our father, he answers him and appears to him in a vision, and he says to him, Go! to the land that I'm sending you to. He's sending him to an enemy land, to Egypt. He says, go because I am with you. Not only does God take one man who changes and restores him, but 70 people of that household is restored. God sends 70 people into a foreign nation that they can be a witness unto God and see His blessing because they see the favor of the Lord. God protects them. They are prosperous in all that they do. The custom of the day was that when a person of stature or significance would arrive in a foreign nation, the leader of that nation would come and welcome him. What happens here? The opposite happens. Jacob goes and he appears before Pharaoh and it is he who blesses Pharaoh. He goes and he blesses the two sons of Joseph. He goes and God offers him 17 years to live in the land of Goshen, to see his grandchildren and his children. And at his deathbed, he goes and he prophesies and speaks over the 12 children who would become the tribes of Israel, prophetically speaking into their future. This is what God is able to do for you when you step out of the way and allow for God to move in your life. You know, in the book of Acts, we hear the story 
And I just want to read you from this portion of Scripture, Acts 11, verses 22 to 26. Because you've got to know that Satan has got a plan for the church. He's always had a plan for the church when he saw what God was doing. His plan, Satan's plan, is for the church to be scattered and to be confused. God's plan for the church is to be scattered, but to be used. God would use 70 people in the land of Goshen that they would come to know. Why is it that there's no evil that's befalling Goshen? Why is it that they are prosperous in all that they do? Because God will use you as an example, as a testimony, as a light into the darkness, wherever you are, even if He sends you to foreign nations. Listen to what David says. That's no wonder David could write in Psalm 23 verse 5. He says, You, O Lord, prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup runs over. That speaks of excessive provision and abundance. In the midst of your enemies, God will do that. In Acts 11, 22, and I'm coming in for a close. Barnabas is called by the church leaders and, say, and saying that we hear lots of good things in Antioch of the ministry of the word, the Holy Spirit moving, uh, believers coming to Christ. And you've got to understand him when they talk about believers, these are Jewish believers because the gospel had not been preached to the Gentiles as yet. But now the church gathers Barnabas and said to them, they basically second him to go off and to bring back a report of what he hears. And in verse 22, the word says here, yeah, Barnabas is sent out to Antioch. In verse 23, he testifies then. He sees it for himself, what happens there. It says, and when he came and he had seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. And today's message is for you to encourage you to continue with the purpose of heart that you should continue with the Lord. But now, verse 25, something happens. Barnabas goes and he departs from Tarsus, but the, the, departs from Antioch, and he goes to Tarsus to fetch Saul. And he brings him back from Tarsus to Antioch. And it says there, then, verse 26, And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church. For a whole year and a bit, this church has been closed. Not so anymore. Not so. And they taught great uh, many people. Listen, listen, what's the beauty of this? The church sent Barnabas, I mean, Barnabas to come and bring them a report of what was happening. God sends Barnabas to bring back Paul. Why? Because God had it in mind that the gospel must be preached to the Gentile nation. Here is the question that I have for you. Are you in the hour that we are living in prepared to be sent like a Barnabas? Then, my second question, who is the Paul that you must bring back? When the church opens, who is the Paul that you must bring back? Oh, God is moving and God is doing great things in this church and He's about to do greater things. I close off with this. I've earlier mentioned about the Dead Sea Scrolls. That was the additional um, biblical scriptures that were found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. The original Dead Sea Scrolls is regarded by many as the most uh, uh, or the oldest biblical artifact with biblical inscription on it. And it's wrong. It is not. Yes, it goes back. It's the second L or oldest. It's, it's uh, more than 2,000 years old. But the oldest biblical artifact with a biblical inscription on it is 2,600 years old, and that is in Israel. And you know what that portion of Scripture is? You know what God has left this world behind with the oldest 
proof of authentic biblical artifact with a biblical inscription on it, it is found in the book of Numbers 6, verses 24 to 26. And I close off with this by saying these words to you. This is what God says. That is what God has left to the world out there. The Lord God bless you and keep you. The Lord God make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord God lift up His countenance over you and grant you His peace. This is the end of my message. We see you in a week's time and we look so forward to that. May God bless you and keep you. In Jesus Christ's name, Lord bless them and we look forward meeting together again. Amen. For more teachings like this and other material, please visit our website at www.littlefallsonline.com.